The text tonight is from James 5, verses 7 through 13. But we'll back up to the beginning of the chapter, begin reading at verse 1. I said through 13, it's really through verse 12. I apologize for that confusion. But the text will be James 5, 7 through 12, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. Give your close and careful attention. This is the word of our God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Says the word of our God. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And once again, let's go to our God in prayer as we seek the working of the Spirit and the illumination in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we come in dependence upon your Spirit now. For all who hear and for the one who speaks, we ask that the words that I speak and the meditations of our hearts tonight would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. We pray that you would overcome any weakness in me and in your people, that the words I speak would bear honor and would demonstrate the truth and the power of your spirit to the good of your people, to our edification and sanctification. We ask, Father, for your help now by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the key doctrines, one of the keystone doctrines of the Reformed faith is that of the sovereignty of God. If you ask people that aren't acquainted with us by church affiliation in some way about what, ask them what Reformed doctrine is or what a Reformed church is or what Reformed 
uh, teaching is, they may say something along the lines of, it has to do with predestination, right? And for many of them, they can't really get their minds wrapped around that because they can't believe that God would be so uh, mean to predestine all things. And for those that have a Reformed background or are convinced of the uh, the biblical nature of this doctrine, we understand and we argue that it really comes down to God's sovereignty. Right. So the keystone doctrine of a Reformed orthodoxy or a keystone doctrine is God's exclusive and exhaustive sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is king over all. He rules over all. And we have this accounted for in our confession, in our catechism. We ask, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence, you'll remember, hopefully, children, you'll remember, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So when people say, I can't agree with Reformed theology, Ultimately, in a sense, they're saying that they can't really get their minds wrapped around God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things. And everyone ultimately will say that. They'll say that they agree with it. But it comes down to this. Do you really, or are there things that are outside of God's sovereign will and control? Are trials, are adversities... Outside of his will, are those things that he purposes for your life? Are those things that he purposes for humanity? Does God ever get angry with man, even in a holy way? Is that really the kind of God we want to serve? And these are the kinds of questions and the arguments that we have in dealing with this. But trials and adversities and stress, even to you and me, reveal our inner thoughts. They reveal our deepest beliefs, our commitments, our strongest commitments. What are we really committed to? We can be happy-go-lucky, but the minute that life gets a bit stressful, are we still happy-go-lucky? We can say we believe that God is sovereign and that he governs all things according to the counsel of his will, But do we really believe that when trial comes along, when we face adversity, and when life gets stressful? When nine children call out mama at the same time? Well, these trials and adversities simply reveal what our strongest commitments are, what our inner thoughts are and our deepest beliefs And ultimately, that's what James is pressing us to in this text. James, you'll remember, is a letter of encouragement to faithfulness in the midst of trials. He's written this to the scattered, the dispersed church in the first century. In the letter, he encourages that church by teaching them and reminding them that God is faithful to his children, even in the midst of trials. And he instructs then, in the midst of trials, how to live in faithfulness. God instructs us to faithfulness by giving us his wis- 
the wis- his wisdom in his word, excuse me. But he also tells us that our life must match our profession, right? Our faith without works is dead. In fact, our life then must match the profession of our faith. But the crucible of trials often reveals our difficulty in this thing, being faithful in trials. And so when we come to this portion of our text, James 5, verses 7 through 12, what the Spirit teaches us is that your patience in trials manifests your knowledge of and submission to God's sovereign will. Your patience in trials manifests your knowledge of and submission to God's sovereign will. Hear the text again, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And so we'll consider the text under two points tonight. First, that your patience waits for and trusts God to accomplish his purpose. And second, your patience is encouraged by the examples of of faithfulness in suffering. So first, your patience waits for and trusts God to accomplish his purpose. In verses 7 through 9, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. First then, what is this coming of the Lord that James points out to us? This is the parousia, if you've been with us for any amount of time over the last uh, year and a half. You've heard Pastor Fincham reference this. The coming of the Lord is a translation of that word, the parousia, Theologically, it often refers to God coming in judgment. And so there are many comings. God comes in judgment. He comes in judgment in the Old Testament. He comes in judgment in the New Testament. Theologically, it often has reference then to God's coming in judgment and not, as we popularly think of it, in which it often refers to his second coming or the end of history. So those are the two ways that we often think about it, but it does, in the context of this letter, I believe, have a specific historical reference, that it does point to the uh, judgment to come, which Pastor Fincham has referenced and pointed to in his series on Revelation. That's specifically in mind here as James is writing to this dispersed church. They're suffering the persecution. They're suffering trials and afflictions. And yet this is all as they've been scattered from Jerusalem and from Judea, as they've been scattered out into the uh, Roman Empire, into some of the Greek-speaking nations. 
And yet James is telling them that God's judgment is about to come. And so there is a historical note here for them. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. But I think for us, it is inclusive of these things. The coming of the Lord is inclusive of these things, but there is a broader sense in which I think we, in our context, in our age, should understand this language. It refers to the entirety of God's purpose. God's coming in judgment in history was to accomplish his purpose. And so God coming in judgment upon uh, Israel with the Assyrians accomplished his purpose. God's coming in judgment upon uh, Judah by, with Babylon accomplished his purpose. God's coming in judgment upon Judea and the Jews in 70 and the destruction of the temple was God coming to accomplish his purpose. And so the coming of the Lord is inclusive of the theological significance of God coming in judgment, of the popularly understood second coming and the end of history, and even to the specific instances that uh, would be seen in the first century. It's inclusive of these, but it is broader in its reference to the entirety of God's purpose. We understand this, again, from our catechism, when we have the question, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He has one purpose then, and these judgments are part of that purpose. His coming, the Lord's coming, at each one of these Uh, moments in history, fulfills his eternal purpose, his one plan, which he, before the foundations of the world, purposed to do. And so we see also then that the coming of the Lord is at hand. We are to be prepared for it just as they were to be prepared for it, because God's purpose does not wait for any man. And so... In the first place, as we consider this text and that our patience waits for God to accomplish his purpose, James tells the church to be patient. The Spirit by James tells us to be patient, waiting for God to work out his purpose. The judgment upon Jerusalem, the progress of the gospel, the growth of the church was not the end of God's purpose in the first century, but rather development and progress to the end of all of God's purpose. And so it speaks to us today, even as it spoke to them, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until he works out his purpose. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, brothers and sisters. You do not know when God will call for you or when God will call in judgment upon this land or upon his church. But be patient. But with this command to be patient, he also says that we are to establish our hearts. Establish your hearts, in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
establish your hearts. To establish your heart, it is to secure, to anchor, to establish a foundation. Settle it so that it cannot be moved. We have the language that James uses earlier in this letter of a man being blown about by every wind of change, a man who is undecided in all his ways. No, you waiting for the Lord to accomplish his purpose are to establish your heart. You're to, put, you're to fix your heart. You're to anchor it because God is working out his purpose. God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. Things are not beyond his will or out of his will. But in the midst of trials and afflictions, we may be inclined to ask, is God really working his purpose out? Maybe this is where we are a little bit in our time when we look around us culturally and we look around our society. Is God really working out his purpose? Because it doesn't seem like it. It seems like we're out of control. The two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. We may be out of control, but God is not. God is certainly then working his purpose out. And so establish your hearts. Anchor it in this knowledge. Anchor it in this comfort. This certainty gives peace in trial and affliction. Is God really sovereign? Has God really, does he really preserve and protect and Does he really govern all of his creatures and all of their actions? Has he really decreed these things from before the foundations of the earth? And only if we answer yes, is there peace to us in the midst of what appears chaos? And so the answer to this question, the certain answer to this question gives peace to us, to God's people in the midst of trial and affliction. But it gives us peace not only in our own hearts, but it gives us peace in our dealings with one another. There are a couple of verses in this text, verse 9 and verse 12, that seem to be kind of add-ons, throw-ins, maybe. And so they don't, commentators have struggled with how to interpret them in the context of the verses around them. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. If the day of the Lord is coming, if the Lord is coming in judgment, then the judge is coming. And so he warns us against uncertainty. He commands us to establish our hearts. Establishing our hearts gives us peace with God and it gives us peace with one another. If we are not certain, if we are uncertain, if we are unclear, if we are unestablished, then we are not at peace with God and not at peace with one another. And so we will grumble against one another. And really, this reflects that we don't believe that God is sovereign and that he really has control of the affairs of men. And so we complain. We complain against God. We complain against one another. 
because it doesn't make sense to us how easy it is to do this. Even when we say that we believe that God is sovereign over all things, how easy it is to grumble in our circumstances, how easy it is to complain that our circumstances are beyond our ability, but then we say that they are even beyond God's ability. We may not say that verbally. We may not say that out loud, but our actions demonstrate it. And so the crucible of trial and affliction squeezes out of us what really lies inside. It shows us the inner thought that we have. It shows us our deepest commitments. Is God really sovereign? Is God really in control? Certainty in this gives peace to us and with, one, with God and with one another. Uncertainty in this, James gives us a warning. Be on guard because the judge is coming. If the Lord is coming, the judge is coming. And so even to the church, James gives a warning that we might not be condemned, that we might not doubt, that we might not reject our faith because of our circumstances. Don't grumble against one another, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He governs all things. He knows the hearts. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he knows if you have grumbled against him. He knows if you have grumbled against one another. He knows if you have denied his sovereign governance of all things. And so James warns us in the midst of trial not to let go of this doctrine, not to let go of this knowledge, but to fix it in our hearts that God is working out his eternal purpose. And establishing that in our hearts gives us peace with God and with one another. And so in the first place then, your patience waits for God to accomplish his purpose. And secondly then, your patience is encouraged by examples of faithfulness in suffering. In verses 10 through 12 then, we consider the second point. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Two examples were given here of patience, faithfulness in suffering. First, we have the example of the prophets the prophets, were told, were blessed because they endured. Take the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. They didn't see the outcome that they desired. They didn't get the happy ending. Isaiah prophesied of God's judgment, but he also prophesied of God's redemption. 
But how long before Christ came, before the virgin gave birth, was Isaiah prophesying? It wasn't just a few years. We were talking centuries. Isaiah didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. Jeremiah was told to prophesy. And at the same time, he was told to prophesy the word of God. He was told, they won't listen to you. What a hopeless endeavor that would be to know that you were going to be engaged in telling God's covenant people what the covenant God said and that they would reject every word. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit and left to die. Oh, someone had compassion on him and threw him rotten bread. Yet he endured. Buy a field, he was told. Buy a field because my promise is that I'm bringing my remnant back. And yet, did Jeremiah ever see that remnant return? Ezekiel is told to prophesy. And if you've ever read Ezekiel, Ezekiel had to endure some very awful and humiliating things in fulfillment of his office. How easy it would have been for us for Ezekiel, for Jeremiah to walk away and say, I don't know that this is really going to work out. And yet we count them blessed who endure. They fulfilled their office. They were faithful, even though they didn't see their happy ending. But lest you become discouraged by that example, of faithfulness and suffering. God gives another one of Job. The trial that Job endured, he lost everything, quite literally, everything but his life. You've heard of the perseverance of Job, but what was the end of that? James says, But you've also seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We have these two examples of faithfulness in suffering. Job endured much. He was encouraged to deny God, and yet he refused to. He stood on his own integrity throughout denying that he had sinned in a way that would have made God angry and come to judge him. And yet, when he was confronted by Jehovah himself, he was humbled even further. But what was the outcome for him? The example of God's compassion and mercy. So God has given us examples, not that everything will work out for us beautifully, not that God will give us double the riches that he took from us. Maybe what he has in store for us is more what the prophets endured. And yet, they're called blessed as well. But these are the examples 
that he has given us by James to teach us that our patience, to encourage our patience by these examples of faithfulness in suffering. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The suffering of Job shows us that. But even when we don't see it, we still profess and confess the same, even when we don't taste that compassion and mercy in this life, as some of the prophets did. These were praised for their faithfulness, regardless of the outcome. And so these are set before you as an example, that you might be faithful regardless of your outcome. There are those that teach that if you haven't experienced the happy outcome of Job, that your faith is weak, that your faith is maybe even non-existent. But instead here, we're praised for faithfulness, regardless of the outcome, whether it's by trial or affliction, whether it's judgment that God brings upon us. We're told to be patient. We're told to persevere and be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Because God has his purpose in mind, and he is working his purpose out. Now, once again, the end of this, we come to a text, to a verse that seems, uh, as some commentators would have it, just kind of a throw-in, as though James didn't otherwise have a way to put this verse in, but he really wanted to get it across to you. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. But James can't have this in mind, that it's just something to throw in because he didn't have another place to put it when he says, above all, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, here are some examples, but above all, my brethren, don't swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no lest you fall into judgment. How readily we've seen in the history of man, in the history of the church, when trial, when affliction comes, when suffering is endured, how quickly and how easily it seems we give up what we have professed. We do that because we, again, don't believe that God really is sovereign. Because we believe that God may not actually be in control of our circumstances. Have you confessed that God is the Lord of all? That he's Lord of lords and King of kings? That he has redeemed you by the blood of his only son and given you his spirit? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that he has made way for you by one way, by one redeemer, and that was appointed before the foundations of the earth, then how can you in the midst of a trial deny such a profession? Do you really believe that? Let your yes be yes, your no, no. He 
calls upon the example of the prophets. He calls upon the example of Job to encourage you that in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your affliction, whether it's loved ones against you, whether it's in our culture, the denial of what once was a prevalent faith and a rejection of obedience publicly, Don't become discouraged and now deny your faith. Don't deny your profession, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. God has not changed, James is teaching us. God is sovereign over all things. He governs all of his creatures and all of their actions. He is working out his purpose. Do you believe that, brothers? Do you believe that, sisters, that God is working out his purpose? Then be patient until you see the end of God's purpose. Be patient until you see his working it out. Whether you are like the prophets who endure to the end and yet don't taste the happiness, or whether you're like Job who endures to the end and yet finds the compassion and mercy of God manifest materially. Is God a different God to them than he is to you? Is God different to you than he is to another member of the church? Does God have dueling purposes? Is he out of control like it seems to us our nation is in so many things? No, indeed, he is not out of control. Indeed, he is working out his purpose. And so he commands our patience in trials. And that patience in trials manifests what we believe about God. It manifests our knowledge of and our submission to his sovereign will. And so our patience waits for God to accomplish his purpose. And that patience is encouraged. He doesn't leave us hopeless. He doesn't leave us without help. So that we might learn to rely upon him and trust in him in all of the circumstances, in all of the trials, in all of the afflictions and seemingly hopeless circumstances that we confront in this life. And so we praise God for his grace, for his mercy, for his compassion, but we praise God that he is sovereign over all things. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do ask that you would give us patience because you are sovereign. And so teach us to rely upon you as you work out your eternal purpose even in our lives and even in the history of the world. Give us the patience and perseverance of the prophets when they didn't taste the happy ending. Give us patience and perseverance in the midst of trials and afflictions because all things are being done according to your will and your will is very good. So forgive us our doubt. 
Forgive us our impatience. Teach us rather to rely upon you and upon your sovereign will and your purpose that we might lead lives of faithfulness in the midst of a decaying and depraved generation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.